and welcome to episode 30 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. Also, welcome to episode 4.0 of Arc Sabbath, my Black Sabbath arc, which I've been running since the 15th of March this year. Now, that was Ronnie James Dio singing NIB on the intro there from the live album Live Evil. And that's the pointed up story where we left off last week. Ronnie James Dio and Vinnie Apice leaving Black Sabbath due to a run in with Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler around the mixing of that album. But I have to say, over repeated listens to the album recently, I have warmed a lot more to Ronnie singing Aussie songs, such as the intro song there, NIB which is obviously a song that's synonymous with Ozzy Osbourne, but it somehow feels right to hear Dio singing the line, My name is Lucifer, come take my hand. Alright, so this is Feckin' Metal, a podcast about heavy metal from Dublin, Ireland, and it is part of the Feckin' Check-In Podcast Network. If you're one of my several new listeners, you might be wondering what's going on in the feed there. Um... This is a podcast network which has multiple different podcasts as a part of it. And if you're just looking for the heavy metal podcasts, you can find them quite easily in the feed. If you scroll through it, uh, they're clearly marked and they're clearly named. And they also have the feckin' metal artwork as well. So uh, thank you to all my new Twitter followers and people who've contacted me recently who just discovered the show. The Black Sabbath arc seems to have reached a lot more people. Um, So if you want to catch up with this series, look for all the episodes marked as Arc Sabbath in the feed and you'll be able to catch up with where we are now. I would like to congratulate a Twitter follower and friend of the show, Don McIntyre, for winning the latest FM points competition. I've been running that for a few weeks. Don played an absolute stormer there. He was so quick on the draw. As I said recently on Twitter, it was only really a one-horse race. So Don will have a feckin' metal t-shirt and mug and a surprise coming his way. And previous prize winners may know what the surprise is as well. Um, but yeah, congratulations, Don. Thanks for taking part. Um, that was that was good crack, like the last one. So maybe uh, we'll have some similar type of fun and games in the future. I haven't really decided yet, but it was enjoyable as always. Recently, I conducted my first interview that wasn't part of the Sabbath arc in over two months. It was a traditional style episode of Feckin' Metal where I interviewed a member of a band, talked about uh, the music of the band, upcoming projects, what they've been getting up to in the last several months. It was quite refreshing, I have to say, to speak to somebody, but I felt also quite rusty as I hadn't interviewed anyone in over two months. And all the people I interviewed for the Black Sabbath arc were people who I knew quite well, except maybe Joe Sigler, uh, but everyone else I had built up a rapport with online and had either spoken to them in person or on, you know, on the phone before, or I had at least interacted with them on Twitter a lot. So this was a bit of a shift from what I've been doing recently, but it was a welcome shift as well. I really enjoyed it. And there's going to be plenty more episodes like that coming your way in the near future. Watch this space. Now, before we move along with the story, and I am going to read you a chapter from Joel McIver's book, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, which was released in 2006, um, to cover this period of the band. But before we move ahead with that, I'm going to, of course, cover some of the songs we talked about last week with my guests. And if there's one song that epitomizes the Ronnie James Dio era of Black Sabbath and the different musical direction that the band went in, and the musical possibilities now available to the band with such a diverse and capable singer, it has to be Children of the Sea. We 
excellent stuff there with the irresistible vocal melodies from Ronnie James Dio and that crunchy and powerful guitar from Tony Iommi. It's probably one of the best songs Black Sabbath have ever written, in my opinion. But we couldn't cover off the music of Heaven and Hell without obviously mentioning that title track, my favourite opening riff of any Black Sabbath song. It's Heaven and Hell. really a song of two parts so here's a clip from the final part of the song where it speeds up and basically turns into a completely different song i think uncle steve might say this is that the type of song where they wrote two songs and both of them could have been a separate song on their own um like you said about a few guns and roses songs when i was on a show a while back but yeah this is certainly a song of two parts where the second song where the second half of it sounds like a completely different song but it's brilliant
Okay, and just because this riff can never be played enough, here's Falling Off the Edge of the World from Mob Rules. finish out this selection of clips from the first two studio albums Black Sabbath did with Ronnie James Dio with a clip of the track that ends the Mob Reels album over and over and little did anybody know that it was over after this song. Okay, so those are some of the highlights from the two albums Black Sabbath did with Ronnie James Dio in the 80s, but there would be more to come, as we all know. Now, Joel McIver covered this period of the band in his biography of Black Sabbath, which is called Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, in 2006. Joel McIver himself is a prominent rock journalist. He has written a number of rock biographies and autobiographies, such as Slipknot Unmasked, The Making of the Sex Pistols, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, The Bloody Reign of Slayer, to Live Us to Die, The Life and Death of Metallica's Cliff Burton, Crazy Train, The Life and the Tragic Death of Randy Rhodes, and Know Your Enemy, Rage Against the Machine. So uh, a diverse range of acts there covered by the works of Joel McIver. He also co-hosted the podcast Dead Rockstars with Mick Wall in 2018, which ran for about 24 episodes. And it's quite an interesting listen as well. Some really good episodes there. They don't only cover the likes of Ronnie James Dio and Heavy Metal X, but there's uh, Elvis Presley, Janis Joplin, um, and various other people who were involved in rock and roll and who obviously are dead, hence the name of the show, Dead Rockstars. But here is a passage from Joel's book which covers the 1982 period that I mentioned on last week's show which ended this incarnation of Black Sabbath. He starts off talking about what Ozzy Osbourne was up to at the time which I think is interesting based on some of the things I've covered in previous episodes of Ark Sabbath. Back in the summer of 1982 Ozzy Osbourne was clearly hitting a commercial and creative peak even with all that was hindering his progress that is his mental instability in the wake of Randy Rhodes' death and his addictions. On the subject of drugs, he mused, as low as you feel is as high as you feel. It's like taking the first sniff of cocaine. You get up there, you think it's great. But everyone fails to remember that when you get up there, high as a kite, the day's going to come when you're going to have to come down. That's the basics in reality. And that's why people are addicts. I'm an addict in liquor. 
but I have management that fucking gets my shit together. I'm a guy that can't take a fucking pill. I've got to take 15. I can't have a drink. I've got to get bombed. I've got to take everything to the end. Everything. Life. I fuck like crazy for about three months. Then I stop and I get very miserable. My biggest dread is getting a disease I can't get rid of. And there's a lot of diseases that you can't get rid of. I don't want to do that anymore. I choose not to do it. So like, I choose to fucking keep myself to myself. It may sound a little bizarre, but I choose to keep myself to myself. I'm a moody bastard because I want people around me. But I don't. I know I ain't gonna fucking live to be an old man. I know that. I'm not planning to fucking top myself, but something's gonna happen to me soon. What the fuck? I'd rather look good in my coffin than bad in my coffin. Fucking go for it. Can you imagine me at the age of 65 or fucking 70 singing, I once was fucking vaudeville, remember him? That's not my fucking style, man. Burn out with a flash. I don't give a flying fuck about myself anymore. Some of this sadness may be attributed to the divorce he had just finalised with his first wife, Thelma Mayfair, and the arrangements that needed to be made regarding access to his children. As he said, I'm just getting over the fucking trauma of my first divorce, but yet I still have a love for my ex-wife. When you get a divorce, there are fucking mind games going on, you know, crazy mind games, crazy fucking craziness. He was obviously happy to be free once again. After all, he and Sharon Arden were now a solid couple, with plans to marry. Of Thelma, Ozzy told reporter David Gans, I met her at Halloween when she fell off her broomstick in 1971. Now she's got a part-time job swimming up and down Loch Ness while the monster has his holidays. She's fucking mad. She's fucking Mrs. fucking Loch Ness monster. I once had a dream about getting a marriage, a house in the country, and at the end of the day, we'd retire. But I'm never going to retire. My ex-wife said to me one day, what are you going to do when you're 57? I said, listen, you cunt. There's never been a fucking 57-year-old rock star. I'm going to be the fucking first. With age, this bitterness passed. Ozzy later told Launch magazine, I was married to a woman before, but because of my alcohol and drug abuse, I screwed the marriage up and it affects the kids the most. They're the silent sufferers. They don't understand why daddy's not coming home anymore. It always affects the kids. The one thing about America that's weird is, like, you'll get married. I'll get married. We'll go out to dinner. We get divorced. I'll marry your wife, you marry my wife. Why not just fucking swap wives for a night? If I wanted to be friends with my wife, I would have divorced her, you know? Marriage is so flippantly taken on here. Oh, I'm bored, let's get married this week. When I got married, I didn't understand what it was about, but the marriage contract is one of the heaviest contracts you'll ever sign in your life. And when there are kids involved, well, they automatically come first. I did a good job of screwing my first marriage up. And so, Sharon Arden fully comes into the picture. Just 30 in 1982, Ozzy was 34, she had already shown her mettle as a manager by pulling Ozzy back onto his feet twice, once after he left Black Sabbath and sank into an alcoholic fug for the first three months back in 1979, and again after Randy Rhodes' tragic death in March 1982. Moreover, she had recently endured an acrimonious split from her father, Don Arden. He had been infuriated by her taking on Ozzy's management, and, other than on a business level, father and daughter ceased communications entirely. Ozzy and Sharon were said to have paid Don £1.5 million for the rights to Ozzy's contract at this time. Sharon was made of tough stuff and took a committed stance over Ozzy, pushing his career as far as it would go. Like her lover, she liked to drink and had once been arrested in LA for drink driving. Bailed out of prison by her friend Britt Eklund and informed the next morning what had happened, she had no memory of the day's events. Soon after, she quit drinking as she and Ozzy were becoming notorious for their alcohol-fueled fights. Our fights were legendary. We'd beat the shit out of each other. At a gig, 
Ozzy would run off stage during a guitar solo to fight with me, then run back on to finish the song. We were in the gutter, morally, and I realised that if we both carried on, we'd wind up a washed-up pair of old drunks living in a hovel somewhere. So I stopped drinking. Such cool-headed strategies towards success led to a little resentment in this most resentful of industries, which Sharon branded with insults over her abrasive management style. She explained, People would openly say, you and Ozzy won't last. They expected him to have a big-titted blonde trophy wife, and he got me, a short, fat, hairy half-Jew. I had a lot to fight against. If I were a man, I'd just be seen as a great, tough businessman. I'm a woman. So men say, oh, she's a bitch, she's a whore, a cunt. I'm afraid it's just what you men do. Plus, I work with my husband, and every woman protects their family. As for Ozzy, it was clear that he was ready to settle down, at least relatively speaking. After all, he'd certainly done his fair share, and more, of working through the apparently endless line of groupies that surrounded any band of moderate standing, let alone a behemoth such as Sabbath. He once explained in typically graphic detail, At first, when I first came to the States, I fucked everything in sight. I've had to clap more times than fucking God. But suddenly I realised, what am I telling these chicks I love you for when I don't mean it? All you want to do is get their ass in bed and fuck the twat off them. I remember one occasion we did Virginia Beach. The door knocks. I've just spoken to my ex-wife. Put the phone down and the door knocks. This beautiful chick comes in and fuck. I get her on the bed and I fuck the ass off her. She goes. Knock, knock, knock on the door. I think she's forgotten something. It's a different chick at the door. Beautiful as fucking God. I swear she looked like an angel. And I fucked the ass off this one. She goes. Knock, knock, knock. And I'm thinking, I can't believe this. Three... Five chicks coming in, and I fucked five. Where are all these chicks coming from? I start walking the corridors thinking, what the fuck? When you're a fucking kid of 24 or 25, and you come from Aston to the States, and you see all these fucking cunts wanting to be fucked, you go like a bull at the gate. You're like a fucking lunatic. I was having perverted scenes. Fucking all kinds of crap was going on in my sexual life. It's bizarre. It was wild. Wild or not, on July the 4th, 1982, Ozzy and Sharon were married on a beach in Hawaii. Ozzy's live album of Sabbath songs entitled Speak of the Devil was ready to go. It completed Ozzy's deal with Don Arden, both as manager and with Arden's jet label, and all seemed to be running smoothly. If only the same could be said of Black Sabbath. Completing their US and Canada tour in August, on which support was provided on some dates by the Canadian act Exciter, one of the first trash metal bands to support Sabbath, the band retired to the studio for the final mix of their own live LP, Live Evil. Relationships with the Ronnie James Dio and Naomi Butler team had cooled slightly in recent months, with the singer apparently trying to take more control of the band than the others were happy with. As Geezer told me, we just saw it as he was trying to take over the band, and we didn't like that. Vinnie Appice witnessed the breakdown at first hand, and he says, I don't think anything really started to go downhill until the live album. I mean, I got along with everybody. I love Tony. He's a practical joker. So am I. And Geezer was cool. But the only problem was towards the end when we were recording the live album. The relationships between Tony and Ronnie and Geezer and Ronnie, they were starting to go downhill. It became like the Americans and the British. But I tried not to let that happen. We always had two limos, for example. And rather than always get in the limo with Ronnie, I get in the limo with Geezer. I had no problems with anybody. I was having a good time. And Tony and Geezer had no problems with me. It was just Ronnie. You know, it was a lot of egos. The tension escalated into actual verbal conflict from time to time, as the drummer remembered. Well, there were a couple of fights backstage with Tony and Ronnie screaming at each other. Two hot-headed Italians. I don't know what they were arguing about. I would just say, whoa, and not get involved with any of it. So by the end of the tour, you could feel the vibe between them. Tony and Geezer would get in one car, and Ronnie would get in the other. I tried to keep it going by getting in all the different cars. Worse, 
it seems that Dio may have been in the habit of entering the studio to adjust the mix without telling the rest of the band, as Iommi told Classic Rock Revisited. We were going in and mixing the album. Over a period of weeks, I was seeing the engineer beginning to look worse and worse. He was getting more drunk all the time. I wondered, what's going on? I asked him one day if he was alright. He said, I can't stand it anymore. I've got to tell you what's going on. I told him, go on. He said, you guys are going home after doing a mix and then Ronnie is wanting to come in and do a mix of his own. I don't know what to do. Basically, that's what happened. That's the crunch of it. We tried to ban him from the studio. It got pretty bad. Apathy counters Iommi's statement, however, saying, that's not what happened. I was there. What happened was, during the mix of the live album, they booked the studio for two o'clock. But they wouldn't get there until four or five o'clock. And this was an expensive studio. So me and Ronnie would be there too. You tell me too, I'm there. So are we going to sit around for three or four hours? No. So we'd start working on the stuff and then they'd show up and it caused a problem. Because we'd say, well, we've worked on the drum sound a little bit. And I guess Tony and Geezer didn't want to do it that way. They don't communicate. When there's a problem, there's no confrontation. Tony does not like confrontation. He goes through somebody else. When Tony doesn't talk to you, you know there's a problem. You can't go to Tony unless you really sit down and talk. He talked to me once in a while, you know. I never had a problem with these guys. I love these guys. They had a problem with Ronnie. And I had no say in this. I just came in when they wanted me in. But Ronnie wanted to do some work. So he'd start doing whatever needed to be done. And they took that as Ronnie sneaking into the studio and doing stuff behind their back. And they might have left and gone to the pub or gone early. Well, Ronnie was in there. He's a workaholic. Yeah, I'm an innocent party. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not going in until they go in. I was just a little kid going, hey, I'm having a good time. Stop fighting, guys. The breakdown in relationships was rapidly heading towards a confrontation. And when the end came, it came quick. Abbasi says, eventually, they accused us of going into the studio and doing stuff behind their backs. Yes, it was a little unjust because I didn't really have any say in the mixing. Maybe I'd say to Martin Birch that the drums needed a little more bottom end here and there, but I wasn't going to say that the guitars were too low or whatever. So if Ronnie said, let's go in at five today, I'd say, okay, because we were driving into the studio from the same area anyway. But then Ronnie said, I'm leaving the band and I'm going to start my own band. Do you want to do it with me? I said, yeah, I thought I can relate to Ronnie. At that point, I could relate to him a little bit more than Tony and Geezer, and I thought it would be cool to be in a new band. Having had a lot of success with Sabbath, it would be fun to build something up from the beginning. But I think they still wanted me to play with them. Dio and Apathy left Black Sabbath in 1982. The pair went on to form the very successful Dio, in which the singer was presumably at liberty to execute whichever mixes he liked. And so... Black Sabbath came to the end of another highly troubled era in their often troubled history. Two singers and two drummers had left them. Their bass player had left and returned. And at the end of 1982, only Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler remained. Okay, so that was quite a lengthy segment from Joel McIver's book, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. But I did find it interesting because up until recently, I hadn't read that book. Unlike the previous texts that I've referenced, which I read years ago and then read again recently, um, which were a Symptom of the Universe by Mick Wall. I Am Ozzy by Ozzy Osbourne and Iron Man, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell with Black Sabbath and The Ears in the Wall by Tony Iommi. So it's fairly well known that at this point Black Sabbath were without a singer. What isn't as well known is that before they got to Ian Gillen, a couple of other options were considered. Mick Wall says they'd already tried out a number of different singers before Gillen's name came into the frame. Opening the doors to all comers, they began giving out tapes of Sabbath backing tracks which any potential recruits could record their own vocals to. That way, they could filter out the nutters, as Paul Clark puts it, before inviting those with a real chance in for an audition. 
Ultimately, this comprised a small handful, none of which really ticked the boxes. Top of the list was Samson singer Nicky Moore, whom Jeff Nichols recalled having a phenomenal voice, absolutely brilliant. But Moore was short and rotund and just didn't look the part. John Sloman was also given an audition, but his clean-cut image and cutesy voice were considered too lightweight to carry the Sabbath tune. A young Michael Bolton, then pursuing a career as a long-haired rock singer, was also briefly considered. But while he had a tremendous voice, as evidenced by his later ascension to superstar status as a crooner of pop ballads, Bolton again lacked the heavyweight presence. Besides, the band had had enough of American singers, they decided. Next up, in a strange precursor to eventually working with Ian Gillen, Tony invited Gillen's successor in Deep Purple, David Coverdale, now fronting his own band Whitesnake, to join Black Sabbath. Jeff Nichols recalls going with Tony to a meeting with Coverdale at the Rainbow in LA to discuss the idea. To make the possibility of an alliance even more attractive, Coverdale brought Whitesnake drummer Cozy Powell with him. We had a good chat, and we kind of agreed in principle that it could work, recalled Nichols. Tony had always been keen on working with David. Anyway, we left it a while, and the next thing we hear is that they'd gone off camping on Dartmoor and were getting Whitesnake back together. It was now that Don stepped in and urged Tony to get in touch with Ian Gillen whose own post-Purple career with his eponymously named band had enjoyed success in Britain and Europe, but had singularly failed to take off in America. All right, so that is the uh, lowdown from Joel McIver and from Tony Iommi. But to broaden the scope of this podcast, I thought I would introduce Ian Gillen's own autobiography into the mix because it's not something I ever hear referenced and it's not something I had read again until recently. So this is Ian Gillen's take about what actually happened and how he was recruited into Black Sabbath. It's from the cryptically titled book called Ian Gillen, the autobiography of Deep Purple's lead singer. This was released in 1998. So Ian picks up the story talking about the disbandment of his own solo band Gillen. He talks about a tour that they undertook in October, November and December of 1982. And just as an example, here's the dates that they were playing in December. So they played December 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, 9th, 11th, 14th, 15th, 17th. And that's after a couple of uh, months before that of playing gigs uh, in in such uh, illustrious places as Cornwall Coliseum, Colston Hall, Bristol, uh, Gloucester Leisure Centre and Hull City Hall. So Gillen was gigging around Britain and he was doing a lot of nights on the trot and basically his voice has had enough. So the story picks up here. After a schedule like this, one of my main reasons for disbanding Gillen was to give my voice a much needed break, even though I was also thinking that the band had about run its course and that I at least should be looking for new challenges. Of course, when the inner circle of the band and those close to it were told, there was this huge upset and, once the formal announcement was posted, it gave the press a lot to write about as well. I've already mentioned my affection for the Magic album and its success. So it was sad that circumstances conspired to make the closing period the acrimonious business it became. However, as if that situation were not difficult enough, it certainly wasn't improved when rumours of a deep purple reunion resurfaced almost immediately after the breakup was made public, and into which frame my name was included, despite the concerns I had with my voice. In fact, it was Richie, or more probably his people, that is Bruce Payne, who made the initial overtures to bring Deep Purple Mark II back together again it being obvious that his own position needn't be a problem as such, because he, and indeed Roger, were with his band Rainbow, while Pacey was thought to be at a loose end, having left Whitesnake. As for John, well he was still with Whitesnake, but, being very close to David Coverdale, he finally decided to stay alongside him. 
So irrespective of what I might or might not wish to do, the idea of a return of Deep Purple Mark II fizzled out before I could even decide either way. However, a very different and totally unexpected and extremely unlikely opportunity presented itself with an approach from Black Sabbath, who had also just disbanded, following the departure of the diminutive but all-powerful vocalist Ronnie Dio and drummer Vinnie Apice. With the loss of their singer and drummer, Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler had been left to decide what to do next. So they first approached their original and co-founding member, Bill Ward, to see if he'd return to the drum kit after a long absence brought on by rock and roll excess, including alcohol and drugs. Bill agreed to a comeback, and then a little after that, I agreed to be their singer for the Born Again album and the tour that would follow. In fact, the initial request to join Sabbath first came from their managers, Don Arden and David Arden, who'd initially had the making of a supergroup in mind with Tony, Geezer, Bill and me. And that was the sort of starting point when Tony, Geezer and I met in a pub near Oxford. However, a few points later, and for various reasons, the supergroup idea had fallen by the wayside, as talks progressed to our working under a new band name. Then, a little bit later still, and the weight of pragmatic business pointed to keeping the new lineup as Black Sabbath. Of course, there was a lot of discussion as to how my standing and reputation with Deep Purple could be respected, but by the end of our session, perhaps I should have said meeting, the numbers were on their side, and on balance, I settled to work under their name. Sometime during the following morning, I had a call from my manager, Phil Banfield, saying, I gather you joined Black Sabbath. Very awkward pause. Then, it's just that, if you're planning on making an important career change like that, I wish you'd call me first so we can talk about it. It really was a meeting. The bottle took a beating. The ladies of the manor watched me climb into my car. Of course, we'd all met before on the festival and rock circuit, but our music backgrounds and the fans we appealed to were very different. So there were bound to be a few puzzled looks on both sides of the merger as we wrestled with the wisdom of our decision. Still, an official announcement was made at a press conference at Le Beat Root Club in London, Soho on the 6th of April 1983, after which we went into the Manor studio at Shipton-on-Sherwell in Oxfordshire and, with producer Robin Black and Jeff Nichols helping on keyboards, we recorded Born Again for the Vertigo label. So, that's Ian Gillen's account of the situation. Maybe a bit scant on the details, but it's nice to hear somebody else's perspective. Somebody who you don't often hear from about this story. And it's also nice to hear about the fact that the Deep Purple Mark II reunion was kind of on the cards anyway before any of this happened. And it had stopped and started and started and stopped again. Uh, so, Ian was kind of a man without a band. He thought he might go back to his original band. That fell through. He got an offer from Black Sabbath and said, Why the fuck not? And... At this point, I would like to pick up the story with my guests on the arc. I know they're very late to the table in this episode, but I felt it was necessary to document this period as it was so rife with turmoil, a word I used a lot in previous episodes, but it was so rife with turmoil that it needed to be documented from many different angles. And now I'll bring you back to the series of interviews I conducted over the last couple of months, and I'll start with Philip Trummer, who picks up the story around the time of Born Again. I mean, the story of... What we're moving into now, which will be the Born Again album, it, everybody heard it. You know, you have Ian Gillen. You've got Tony Iommi calling Ian Gillen. Hey, let's meet at a pub in Oxford and let's go have some drinks. You know, there was an ulterior motive. This is a really cool story, though, isn't it? I mean, you can Google Street View, the pub where Tony and Geezer met with Ian Gillen got completely hammered and eventually the story that everyone knows is Ian Gillen said well I woke up the next morning my manager called me 
and said, hey, if you're making any huge, you know, decisions, why don't you consult me first? And he said, oh, what are you talking about? Well, you joined Black Sabbath last night while you were shit-faced. So um, I think that's a fantastic story. And it's one of my favorite Black Sabbath arcs because Born Again is just such a cool album. Because we're thinking that, you know, Ian Gillen already had an ulterior motive, but everything we know about Born Again is that it was a one-year-long party. That's what we know. That's what they're telling us. That's what all the stories eventually lead to, that it was a, a brilliant one-year-long piss-up. And, I mean, the more you read, the more you look, the more you type in on YouTube, the more you try to, to, to dig in into the album is they had a lot of fun. It, the stories here are hilarious. Okay. Of all the Black Sabbath albums, these are probably the funniest stories. You know, we have the story about the pub in Oxford where Tony Iommi and Giza Butler, you know, hang out. They hang out with uh, Ian and ultimately the story is they all got shit-faced completely shit-faced and ian's manager calls him the next day says hey if you're going to make any huge decisions you know next time consult me um and he's like what what do you mean yeah you joined black sabbath last night and uh, oh okay well and eventually they move on to manor house and they start recording what we know is born again and i think it's I think it's a fantastic album. This is the album that divides people. It's unique in the Sabbath canon because it's it stands by itself. Ian Gillen was on one album. Some people didn't like it. Some people loved it. Some people thought it was the worst thing they ever did. I think it's hilarious. I think it's fantastic. I listened to it more than many of the Sabbath albums that came later. Of course, not everybody is as enthusiastic about Born Again as Philip is. In fact, this album has enjoyed a terrible reputation amongst many people for years, including journalists, fans, and fellow musicians. Uh, I once read an interview with Steve Harris from Iron Maiden where he said, I own all of the Black Sabbath albums, even Born Again. The fact that he would single out Born Again above all other Sabbath albums speaks volumes. So I was interested to hear what Alejandra thought, as she was a massive fan of the Dio era, didn't like the Aussie era at all. Surely she would have listened to Born Again out of blind curiosity? I haven't listened to it, but I've, uh, I've heard what people think of it. <laughs> and I know it's, it's, not very, it's not very popular among uh, most uh, Sabbath uh, fans, I think. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, perhaps Melissa from Metal Chat with Melissa would have something more interesting to say about Born Again. I'm always thinking of Ian Gillen. I was always thinking of him more with Deep Purple, although I didn't have that same feeling with uh, Ronnie James Dio. It's interesting because it's sort of like, it's all incestuous, right? Because it's all, it is. It's just, <laughs> it's very incestuous. I thought it was very kind of strange. It's sort of like uh, Black Sabbath meets Deep Purple, right? Here's what I thought. I thought it was a totally different band. I didn't think it was Black Sabbath anymore. And I get that they had to put the name on it because that goes back to the whole branding. I'll be honest with you. I don't go back to that album too, too often. And um, 
you know, I don't have a, um, I'm not as well versed in that album. I'll have to go back and check it out. Melissa raises an interesting point, and it's one that I would revisit with my guests again and again as part of Ark Sabbath. At what point is it no longer Black Sabbath? Where is your jumping off point? When does it stop being the band that bore the name Black Sabbath? Anyway, we'll revisit that point when the lineups start getting really messy in the 80s. But back to the matter at hand, here's Joe Sigler on his initial impression about Ian Gillen joining Black Sabbath. Well, I was not terribly into Deep Purple at the time. Obviously, I was aware of them, um, but they weren't like a major musical thing to me. So the fact that they got Deep Purple singer to sing didn't do much for me personally. I like, oh, okay, they're changing again. That that was my only memory that I remember of it back then. Um, I didn't have uh, any, I actually didn't have any weirdness about it personally because I didn't see it as anything more than just another singer. Um, would I prefer them to stay with the, oh, yeah, I love the Mob Rules album. It was great, but okay, they're not doing it. And then I started reading on what was coming and I saw the stories about, you know, oh, it's Deep Purple, and, you know, the press before it came out was calling it Purple Sabbath, or, you know, Got Deep Sabbath, and stuff like that, and they got the award back, so I was like, okay, you got three out of the four, that, that's more than enough to pass the authenticity threshold, so I'm like, all right, my overriding memory before the album came out was, okay, let's see what this is like. Um, I didn't have hatred in fact that was the first live black sabbath show i saw i wanted to see the mob rules tour but they had i was living in philadelphia at the time i had just they had just come through philly after i bought the album so i couldn't go see it i was only 16 at the time so i wasn't about to go traveling so i went and saw them on the born again tour and i was like this is great i loved it i freaking loved the born again album i loved it i that, that quote that you hear Ian Gillen use all the time, he goes, I was the worst singer Black Sabbath ever had. I didn't wear the same leathers. And yeah, I mean, it's a pretty well-repeated thing by him. But I didn't agree with that at all. In fact, I, I've, I've issued this hot take on other appearances I've made and on Twitter, and I get an enormous amount of crap over it, which is, in my opinion, Ian Gillen does the best live version of the song Black Sabbath than any other Black Sabbath vocalist. Some controversy, as my buddy Josh might say, from Joe there, uh, talking about Ian Gillen doing the best version of Black Sabbath. But yeah, this seems like a good time to check in with Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast. If you follow me on Twitter, and that's at Cast, you might also follow some of the people that I interact with, or might have just seen my interactions with these people. Uh, two of them being Joe Sigler from black-sabbath.com, and that's at SabbathFans, and... Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast, and that's at Sabbath Bloody PC. So I noticed in recent months an interplay between Rye and Joe uh, where they, when they're talking about Black Sabbath, and especially if they're talking about Born Again, but sometimes it's just in general, they will hashtag keep it warm rat, which is, of course, a lyric or a line from the song on Born Again called Keep It Warm, where Ian Gillen says, keep it warm rat. The place by your side Nobody gonna take away your magical ride Etc. Well, he's talking to clearly his woman who's at home And he's saying keep it warm Keep the bed warm for me I'm coming home uh, But uh, I thought there might be some deeper level To this uh, constant hashtag that they regularly use So Roy explains 
Oh, that's from, so I was on, uh, we have the Deep Dive Podcast Network over here and uh, the lads uh, over at uh, the Deep Purple Podcast meet. I, I sat in with them on a Born Again episode and that's kind of, uh, it's such an exciting thing to talk about. There's nothing but great fuckery in the backstory of, of Born Again, um, which we can touch on a little bit here. Um, but it just kind of excited all that stuff, but keep it warm, rat. That's just like a Ian Gillen uh, little part of that song. Great song too, keep it warm. We had to check the liner notes to see that he actually said rat because everybody had a different idea of what it was. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I'm leaning more towards like, it's a pet name kind of thing for some some chick that he might've, I don't know if he wronged her. I, I, I don't think it's scathing. Um, I think it's like a little pet name kind of thing about a relationship that he had maybe in the early purple days or something like that. Um, but uh, I was doing research. I was like looking up like what's rat slang for? And I was looking at all this stuff and it came up that it was like uh, a wrestling term. I don't know if you're like, like professional wrestling groupies. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh, that kind of makes sense. Maybe he's talking <laughs> that she was a groupie, but then that seems like it's very localized to, to wrestling. But yeah. So you can see we dove into it too much. That's why it's a hashtag is because we get going with these little things, you know, especially with born again, like all the crazy shit that went on there. And like the fact that there's not, solid photo evidence of some of these stories that are told over like we want to see a picture of that fucking dwarf dressed up like the phone again baby but there's no actual pictures of it like people just uh, gillen just talks about it he's like it was ridiculous um we pulled the mats out from him and he he almost killed himself and then that was the end of the dwarf it's like well okay but did you take pictures of like the gigs that you did it at i certainly agree that there are some excellent stories from this period of the band but what about the music what about the fit of Ian Gillen in Black Sabbath. I like the the cocktail that came out of it. Um, as far as it actually having longevity, I, I couldn't see it going beyond an album uh, just because <laughs> the, the, the way they did it, they went full on like that. You can't maintain, you can't maintain the power that's on Born Again. I don't think anybody can. And um, Gillen had already kind of, it's funny, the, the whole creation of it is weird because they, they say like over a couple of pints, I was suddenly in Sabbath, you know, like it definitely goes there's definitely a deeper field of that of Don Arden putting them together and saying, this is what you're doing next. Um, but I think they got along really well. Obviously, Iomi and Gillen are best mates even to this day. They still do a lot of tribute show stuff together. It was kind of thrown together, but it was amazing how it happened. But it, yeah, built, not built to last. It got to a point there where I think deep, a Deep Purple reunion was the the best thing for all those lads as far as the amount of control because Gillen never felt comfortable in Sabbath as much as it was a cool big he, he definitely got him out in the spotlight again but because of all the fuckery around it 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 wasn't the right thing to to keep him moving on and um I really like Perfect Strangers I thought he his voice at that point is is phenomenal and a lot of people have said that's right before or even during Born Again he blew out his voice but I think he sounds great on uh um, he's just, he's not doing the same shit, but I mean, it's he doesn't have the banner of Sabbath to kind of do that. I think he embraced that. He's like, oh, I'm in Black Sabbath. Like they're known as evil. Like I'm just gonna go full on. This, some of the screams on on Born Again, like the song Born Again, the, the register he gets into there. Shit, like Alfred, eat your heart out. <laughs> All right then. Well, this is not Arc Purple. But seeing as Rai brought it up, let's talk about some of the music on this album. Maybe starting with Born Again, the song. It's fantastic, isn't it? Now, I've read people complaining about how Gillen just does his Deep Purple vocals on a track that 
it shouldn't apply to, but I don't agree at all. I think this is, you know, you get that moody balladesque doom riff from Tony and Ian does with it the best thing he can do. He gives us his signature scream at some points, but he's also just really laying down some amazing vocals on this track. And I'm really annoyed that it's not on the live disc that's on the you know expanded reissue of uh, Born Again. Since you asked me to, to be on this podcast, I've listened to the album a lot and it's easily my favorite song in the album. Yeah, the title track, I think that's probably the one that's a little, uh, not heavy handed. It's one of my favorite tracks from the album. Um, but yeah, very much that's a cross section there of uh, the Deep Purple Sabbath, more so than some of the other tracks. Um, my favorite track, and this will get the feckin' metal in there, um, is Disturbing the Priest. Like how bonkers and maniacal and sinister and amazing is that riff? Um, kind of you think about when it's out too like it's got this start stop harmonicy kind of thing that almost sounds like a 90s kind of tripped out groove metal kind of thing um but with huge atmosphere the keys are heavy as shit on there i mean the mix is say what you will about the mix with born again that's a whole nother story to dissect and if you if you really want to dissect that maybe listen to my other podcast because <laughs> i've talked about it to death do we mind disturbing the priest not at all not at all not in the least you know disturbing the priest they came over from the from the, from the church next door to the manor house and they said oh you know we can't have our choir practice because you're over here playing heavy metal and uh what you gonna do about it and uh well we'll write a song about it it is fantastic and you know once you learn the origins of the songs you just like them a lot more I think uh, a lot of people listening will probably know the story of the song Trashed. In fact, I think it's already been mentioned on this podcast. But in case you weren't listening or in case you don't know, here is Philip who's going to talk about this song. So this is the opening track from the album Born Again. And this is the song that introduced everybody to the Ian Gillen fronted version of Black Sabbath in 1983. The whole idea of Black Sabbath at this time was... It, it was a huge mess and they just had it they just had a great time the song trashed recounted the story of ian gillen racing a car that belonged to bill on a racetrack at richard branson's house flipping it several times and just destroying it and walking away from what could have been a deadly experience and saying oh hey i had a good time sorry your car is completely destroyed my notes were uh, you know it's a rocking opener drinking driving and going off the edge in a fast car it's a truly strange thematic choice for sabbath uh you know he's thrashing bill's car and the song just absolutely kills it Another notable track from the Born Again album is the song Zero the Hero, which Guns N' Roses were later accused of stealing the riff from for their song Paradise City. Here are both of the riffs in question. I'll let you make up your own mind.
Okay. And then here is Rai discussing Zero the Hero. I, I think so. I know for sure Gunners are totally into um, Sabbath, even Axel. I mean, they, they did cover of It's All Right from uh, Technical Ecstasy, right? And really it kind of works really well with Axel, I thought. I think they did it before November Rain. He just played it on the piano by himself kind of thing. So, I yeah, I mean, obviously they follow in the footsteps. And Slash is big on Ozzy. Um, he's all over Ordinary Man even um, playing on there. But... Yeah, it's funny though when you see that, like that one in particular, like the influences that people pull out of Sabbath too, like uh, the changes. Uh, your man uh, Charles, I was gonna say Charles Barkley, but uh, Charles Bradley, uh, he did that soul cover of uh, Changes, and that kind of took that to another level. And I know a lot of people that were like, "That's a Sabbath song," like, yeah, um, yeah. There's some. There's all kinds of facets in there that other people lock onto. And pretty much every Sabbath song has been covered in some regard. It's ridiculous, the amount of tribute. What about Philip? Did he reckon there was thievery going on? I highly doubt it. What was funny about this story is that I just recently, on a Facebook group, somebody posted Born Again. And then another guy said, oh, this is a terrible song. It was just ripped off of... Or no, somebody posted Guns N' Roses. They said, oh, this was just ripped off of... Uh, a Black Sabbath riff, Zero the Hero. And I was like, wait, what? So I compared the two and I'm like, sure, there are some similarities, but the the same kind of similarities that you could look at with any riff, any rhythmic kind of guitar pattern. And it's very unlikely to me that Slash was sitting there listening to Born Again and thinking, ah, I'm going to take that riff. But um, Zero the Hero is an interesting song because as you move towards the 90s, it sounds like the birth of new metal. It's very, very groovy. And a lot of the bands that became very big in the 90s, that's the kind of riff they would play. You know, I, I read articles where people were like, well, Zero the Hero kind of was the first new metal riff. And when you listen to it that way, you're like... Yeah, 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 that works. And we're talking about 1983. So we're talking, we're at least 10 years before all these groove metal bands and all this stuff popped up. But uh, I, I think there's an argument to be made there that Black Sabbath invented new metal in 1983, which would then lay dormant for another 10, 15 years. And we couldn't talk about the Born Again album without talking about that famous Stonehenge set and the song Stonehenge, which were, of course, parodied in the film. This is Spinal Tap, perhaps one of the most famous parts and parodies in the film. This is Spinal Tap. I'll let Philip pick up the story. Something like that. And, and the story was that they asked, what do you want to do for the stage show? And Geezer said, well, Stonehenge. And then they asked, okay, how big do you want it? And he said, well, life-sized. And, you know, a life-sized Stonehenge doesn't really connect with, you know, most of the venues that exist. So, you know, the story is about the Stonehenge stage set. The, The whole story about the dwarf who wore the outfit of the cover now the cover is a whole different story you need to cut you need to talk about and i don't know 
but I think it's it, it's a brilliant album cover. Darn Arden was managing Black Sabbath. He wanted to piss off Ozzy and Sharon. Sharon, who was his daughter. He found this guy. He said, give me a cover. I don't care what it costs. I'll pay you anything. Just to make it work. And here we are with Born Again. And Darn Arden was the guy who set up the stage set with the dwarf in the outfit falling off a Stonehenge. I'm not sure if it was a, a dig at Dio. Well, anyways, so Don Arden, the way Tony and, you know, all the others tell it, it was, here we are, we're at our first show, there's the dwarf walking around backstage, and he's wearing the outfit of the, 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 the cover, you know, with the fangs and everything, being the baby, and we have this massive Stonehenge stage set up. And he's up there screaming and falling behind onto a huge, you know, set of mattresses. And then we come out and play. And, you know, one day the mattresses were gone. <laughs> the guy got really hurt. <laughs> That's a whole different uh, shit show. But I believe Don Arden really wanted to mess with Ozzy and Cher. I think that was Don Arden. Because if you look at Ozzy's trajectory around the same time, um, again, this is another managerial thing that just really needs to be dissected. Maybe you can come on my show and we can go through like the managerial history, but the Arden family, the way that they, um, a lot of the drama behind the, the Ozzy versus Dio, who's better, which camp are you in? I think that's formulated to an extent because they were all kind of part of the same marketing team and pulling from the same assets maliciously at certain points. Cause I know, you know, it's obvious. I mean, when, the, the guy takes your daughter and weds her and, uh, you know, takes all your assets away from you. There's going to be some back and forth as far as the sabotage that they talk about with the album cover for Born Again and all that stuff. Um, I think some of that is rooted in actually just the infighting. But you look at what Ozzy was doing, Speak of the Devil. He had a Ronnie James Dio uh, little person. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd hang him during Goodbye to Romance. Like, it's pretty on the nose. Yeah, that's my uh, my Sabbath uh, conspiracy theory. I'll get my tinfoil hat on and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Now, I think like to an extent, it's part of the marketing machine. They were all linked into um, Kerrang! at that time. Of course, that's where all the dirt came out. And I know for a fact, I mean, talking about our man, Nick Wall there and stuff like that, uh, a lot of that crossover is formulated by the magazines and stuff. I mean, it's... They're big. By that time, they were an institution. They were a name that people wanted to hear about the the drama behind it and some of the crazy shit that was going on. I mean, that the whole idea of the lead singer Deep Purple joins and they're, they're forming this super group. Meanwhile, uh, well, even when Ozzy still, when Randy was still with us, I mean, like they were taken off, right? And that whole thing blowing apart at that time. There's just so much crazy stuff going on that um, it's funny. Sometimes the music gets lost, which it's a little unfortunate with uh, Born Again, despite the mix. I mean, the tracks on there are phenomenal. All right, so we may have only covered one album and tour of Black Sabbath, but what an extremely interesting time, rife with hilarious stories and colourful characters. Some categorise the Ian Gillen experiment as a failure, some categorise it as a success, 
but I don't know if anyone could categorise what happened next as anything but an absolute catastrophe. And on that note, I will bid you farewell, but we'll meet again at the seventh star. Gotta listen to